from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. This week, we're building off of our conversation about wraparound services from a few episodes ago. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to our interview with Middletown Superintendent Richard Del Moro, I recommend you give that one a listen first, because I think it sets the scene for our conversation today, where we're going to be circling back to community schools. Now, I know I have brought these up before, but if we are going to talk seriously about improving our rural public education system, if we're going to talk about fulfilling the American ideal of world-class educational opportunity for all our kids so that they can grow up to fulfill the other American ideal that anyone can be successful in life no matter if they are from the Upper East Side of Manhattan or the Lower West Side of Sullivan County, then we need to talk seriously about community schools. So today, we're talking to someone who has been talking seriously about community schools for years. My name is Abel McDaniels. I am a community school director in New York City. I work uh, for the Center for Supportive Schools, and um, my school is PS 111 in Long Island City. Abel McDaniels is one of the nation's leading scholars on community schools. The moment you start digging through the literature on community schools in America, his is a name that pops up over and over again from his time as a research associate at the Center for American Progress. He also holds a master's degree in education policy and management from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And he also holds a bachelor's degree in urban studies from the University of Pennsylvania. I first became aware of Abel through a panel he participated in about community schools on C-SPAN. Yes, I occasionally watch C-SPAN. And he started out by summing up the significance of his research at the time. And I'm going to read a quote from him. We will talk today about policies that can support a community school strategy. What our paper does is show that this is possible to do at scale across multiple schools or school districts, and that it is necessary to give kids in communities of concentrated poverty a high-quality education. Okay, so Abel and his team are finding in their research that community schools are necessary to give kids in communities of concentrated poverty a high-quality education. Now, in rural spaces, we don't have concentrated poverty. We just don't have the population density to have concentrated anything. But we do have widespread poverty. And that means that the exact implementation of poverty-reducing measures is going to look a little different in Sullivan County than it does in New York City. But it is no less important. Our kids need access to diverse educational resources and opportunities which means that the function of community schools can be really valuable to us, just as we heard about in Middletown a couple of weeks ago. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to Abel. A community school 
So it's both a place and a concept. Um, as a place, obviously, it is a public school. Um, and as a concept, it is a connection of partnerships and connections between kind of that school as an organization, the people in it, and organizations and people in the surrounding community. And so that said, what is the Center for Supportive Schools? Yeah, so the Center for Supportive Schools is a nonprofit organization um, here in New York City. We're considered a community-based organization. And the way that New York City and many other initiatives uh, across the country have structured their community schools work is by contracting community-based organizations called CBOs for short. It's also known as a lead agency model, but essentially the um, city or whatever authorizing agent there is awards contracts to organizations to partner with and develop and lead a community school strategy in a public school. Could you kind of just get into a little bit of how exactly wraparound services relates to community schools and what kind of role that plays? So really, I would say that wraparound services are part and parcel of any community school or community school strategy. So essentially by strategy, I mean that a community school, I find it more helpful to think of as a strategy and that it's a way of thinking about and managing a school as opposed to a specific model. Mm -hmm. So kind of in that vein, uh, there are really four main components that make up that strategy, although what they look like in a specific district or particular school is probably going to look different just based on the needs of that particular population. So those four kind of broad components of any community school strategy are first going to be wraparound services, uh, also called integrated student supports in the field. So that really, again, is a range of things from food support through food pantries or partnerships with food banks, um, connection to physical health services through school-based health centers, mental health services, through different ways of bringing clinicians into school. Clothing support um, is a major focus of some community schools. Really, whatever material needs that a student population and their families have, wraparound services and creating those partnerships with different agencies, other nonprofit organizations, community partners to meet them is one core component of a community school strategy. Next would be some forms of extended learning opportunities, sometimes called expanded learning opportunities. So opportunities for students to continue to be engaged in recreational, um, but also academic enrichment opportunities after school, during the summer months, during school vacations, um, but some coordinated activities to give one kind of stop the learning loss that we might see happen when students are away from schools for extended times, but also 
give students the range of those enrichment opportunities that wealthier students uh, regularly and routinely have access to. The third real pillar of community, the community school strategy would be family engagement. So having structured and coordinated opportunities to engage students, parents, and family members in some way in the work of the school. And again, that's going to look very different based on the particular school and the needs of the particular students. And then the final component, again, is more conceptual, and that is collaborative leadership. So in addition to your usual decision makers in a school, you're also bringing in a community school director and in a structure like the one that New York is using that we kind of just went over, that community school director works in the school and is coordinating and leading the strategy on the day-to-day, but is not necessarily an employee of the school district or a subordinate of the principal. So that's a way of creating new structures to support collaboration among different actors. Ideally, parents and community members are also central to decision-making around this. So those four pieces, wraparound services, like we started off, family engagement, um, collaborative leadership, and then extended learning opportunities are kind of the core ingredients of a community school strategy. But kind of backing up to my initial comments, I just want to point out Again, it is a strategy rather than kind of something we're picking up and doing everywhere. And what needs to pull all of those pieces together is a really strong understanding of the strengths and needs in a particular community and then in a particular school population and the ability to weave whatever components are necessary based on that assessment together with some real strong coordinating infrastructure. So developing services that are going to help grow students into, you know, curious, passionate individuals, that process, it sounds like needs to be unique in every school because every school is obviously in a different community that has different resources available to young people. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd say this work is very organic. Um, And those four pieces that I identified are the core pillars of the work, but it has to be tailored to, as you said, the specific resources and then the specific needs in the community that you're trying to do this. The other interesting thing that you, that one, and one of those four pillars that you were talking about that I think is so interesting is that schools will bring someone like you and who isn't necessarily employee of the school, but it's coming from an outside organization in your case um, to help develop the community school aspects of a public school. Is the reason for that because someone like the principal, the superintendent, other people in the administration, they already have their hands full. They have set jobs already. And for them to dive into school innovation is often just more than they can handle with only 24 hours in a day and seven days a week. Yeah, I think to some extent that's right. Um, I think at the onset of this work, that really was the rationale for 
creating those partnerships between schools and lead agencies or community-based organizations because people in a school have really have their hands full with planning, delivering, monitoring, teaching, and learning. I think, you know, now that it's been a few decades that we have a lot of different examples of standalone community schools and community school initiatives, another benefit of this particular structure is you're bringing in extra expertise into the school. So my organization, we are a youth leadership and youth development organization really focused on school culture. So kind of before we got into community schools, we have been training and providing a really robust evidence-based peer mentoring program for our schools. And that's kind of the expertise that we bring to our community school work. In New York City, the YMCA is a CBO that has many community schools. So they know how to run really strong after-school programs for youth, uh, similar to the Boys and Girls Club. Um, In New York City, a lot of traditional youth mental health organizations are also CBOs. So that's the expertise that they're bringing to that school. So by nature of whose schools or districts choose to engage as a partner, they're also able to strategically bring in expertise that you might not necessarily have in a school. Um, But, you know, there's also a lot of examples of, again, standalone schools and districts where the community school director is a district employee in a more traditional sense or school leadership directly supervise uh, their community school director and hire them onto their budget. And I think a lot of school districts are looking to move that direction for sustainability. So Baltimore um, City Public Schools in Maryland has been expanding its community schools work with an eye toward integrating it a bit more into the district. Actually, Washington, D.C.'s public schools just launched what I would term kind of an in-house community schools initiative. So I guess like with um, what we've been talking about so far, there really are a range of ways to structure the arrangements, again, depending on the needs, interests, and resources that a particular community has. And just to clarify, in your case with PS111Q and you know, bringing someone like you in from the Center for Supportive Schools, is that costly to the public school or is that something that the state or some other organization is, is funding? Yeah, so there are a lot of ways to structure funding for this. So in New York City, the city contributes some funds to its community schools initiative. There's also a mixture of federal grants. And then actually here in New York State, we have a decent amount of state money supporting community schools through specific grant programs, but also a few years now, ago, the governor set aside funds for districts that meet a certain poverty threshold to use to support community schools and um, set aside in foundation aid. So in New York City, those different funding sources are kind of pulled together. And then at the central level, the city awards contracts to different CBOs that have met 
you know, a range of thresholds and matches them with schools. But even in the state, um, there's so many different ways that you could structure this. Also, would love to get a sense of what your day-to-day kind of looks like as a community school director. Right now, there is more kind of routine to the day-to-day, um, but prior to the pandemic, it's hard to characterize a day-to-day. So usually, I would be present at arrival and greeting students and parents as they're coming in, um, trying to make conversation with parents, um, and also just having my face be a visible presence uh, at that onset of the school day. Then for the morning, I could be sitting on some of our various school-based teams. This might be a little more specific to New York City, (laughs) but that would be kind of, you know, your instructional leadership team, our positive behavior intervention system, PBIS team, of teams for various events, our team of our mental health clinicians, our attendance team. I might also be meeting with partners to set up a new partnership program that's either going to be happening after school or during the school day. I would be popping into classes doing partner programming to observe and also kind of support whatever logistics might need attending to. And then in the afternoon, similarly being present to support after school programming. And then of course, kind of stealing away time to attend to more paperwork. So what do you feel like some of your major goals are within your role? And then also, Similarly, what do you feel like some of your big accomplishments have been within this role right now? So on a day-to-day level, I understand my role to be working with other members of the school community from our teachers, our school leadership team, our families to tease out the bigger picture vision for what the needs of the students are, what goals we ultimately want to see, and then how do we put together the school resources we have and other resources from our partners or in the community to get there. And connecting the day-to-day work that our districts and school-based staff are, um, you know, again, have their hands full with the ability to back up a little and have that bigger picture and those larger goals in mind. Mm. Specifically, um, one of the metrics that we really look at heavily, both at the initiative level in New York City, um, but also that I think is a helpful kind of indicator of the health of a student population school community is attendance. 
Um, so kind of in terms of specifics, that is one indicator that I really focus on and really plan and drive a lot of work intended to improve attendance and reduce chronic absence. And then in addition to kind of those more strategic considerations more broadly and attendance improvement specifically, my main responsibility is managing our ecosystem of partnerships. So we have seven core partnerships that we integrate into the school day and after school. Most of those partnerships are art enrichment opportunities for students. Um, So I am attending to that work to make sure that not just the logistics are set, but that we're really integrating the work of those partners into the school day in a way that's thoughtful and makes sense and is seamless, and that we are collecting and looking at various types of data to make sure that we're seeing the results that we hope for. So I know that before you were in the role that you're in now, you were doing research with the Center for American Progress. So, you know, I I feel like you're one of the most qualified people to answer this question. To what extent do community schools improve outcomes for young people? What does that end up looking like? Yeah, I think... We have some existing pieces to point to, and I think it's exciting because in the past five, six years, there's been a trickle of evidence showing community schools have a lot of potential to improve outcomes for students. So I know traditionally we look a lot at academic achievement and test scores, um, but there are some other outcomes that um, are more intermediate, that community schools can play a really strong role in developing and that with time will translate into those academic achievement and attainment outcomes. So attendance being one, um, various indicators of school readiness upon entering kindergarten being another. And Increasingly, we're seeing studies and evaluations of specific initiatives um, kind of further showing that community schools have a lot of potential to improve student outcomes. Is there a great reason why we're seeing so many more, at least it seems like this, I guess I don't have any concrete data to back this up, but it seems like there are so many more community schools and schools that are, if not officially community schools, really trying to engage outside of the boundaries of the school itself and trying to bring in different resources and trying to engage parents more and whatnot. seems like this is happening more in cities by quite a bit than in more rural areas. I'm curious if, if you know of a reason why that is, why there there's kind of a lack of rural public education innovation. Yeah. um, I think there's a few things going on. So first There actually are a handful of rural or more rural communities that have been doing this over the years. I'm going back to the late 90s or um, first decade of the 2000s. So Multnomah County in a couple of counties in Oregon has a pretty robust community schools initiative, I believe, Mm -hmm. encompassing around 60 different schools. And that has been in the work since the late 1990s. Um, Similarly, 
Berea College in um, Kentucky also supports community schools in a range of communities, some of which are rural, and they actually were awarded one of the federal community school grants a few years ago. And then uh, the last one I'm familiar with is in the Lehigh Valley, the United Way has been leading community schools. And I think going back to the early 2000s. So there are a handful of rural communities that already have and are expanding community schools work. But to your point, I think something you said earlier around just cities having the visible presence and saturation of resources really being a driver for whether people think that a community school strategy is possible or feasible. So in New York City, we're very saturated with youth serving nonprofits. Um, and that's true of a lot of cities, I think, especially on the East Coast. So it might seem as though, or it might just be, I guess, more apparent for people that a community school strategy is in reach and makes sense. But like you kind of alluded to earlier and a bit in your conversation in the wraparound services episode, I, I think that is a real missed opportunity um, because you can put together a community school strategy almost anywhere if you're approaching it as a project and in innovation. To your point around why the expansion, I think obviously the pandemic has really shown us the core organizing role that schools really already play in our communities and what mm. we're left with when that's taken apart. But, you know, as we've seen in so many sectors, it's also shown just the depth of need and levels of um, depravity in our society. And to me, I think the concentration of need, unmet needs and poverty uh, really speak to why community schools as a strategy are worth doing and what we can expect to see. Um, aside from individual kind of low-income students and individual low-income families, when children are growing up in neighborhoods where almost everyone is low-income, living in poverty, that in itself exerts additional effects. And we have, you know, studies from a range of cities showing that student achievement of a school changes by not just the level of poverty um, of individual students, but neighborhood poverty. Um, living in neighborhood poverty reduces the likelihood of high school graduation, and again, not just individual students living in poverty, but the effects of growing up in a neighborhood of poverty. So in my mind, community schools really speak to those neighborhood effects exerted on student achievement in schools. I think um, obviously concentrated poverty is not limited to cities. So as we're seeing the suburbanization of poverty more entering towns are realizing there's a need to do something different and starting mm. to look at how they might put together community schools. And hopefully uh, we'll see more rural communities also looking to adopt this strategy to your point. 
I feel like when we think of the concept of poverty in the U.S., the picture that comes to mind for most people, I think, is not of beautiful rolling hills and, you know, these wide open spaces and whatnot. It's poor neighborhoods in cities. And rural poverty is such a a big issue, but it just looks so much different where, you know, it's wrapped up in all these other issues of like lack of transportation and lack of resources. And, you know, when people get addicted to opioids because of their sense of hopelessness, there's no, you know, treatment centers for them around and whatnot. So I guess that kind of ends my interest in, in, you know, this issue in rural areas here. Well, I'm also curious, kind of given that in New York state, we have, you know, a decent amount of state dollars supporting community schools. Mm. And for at least the past cycle or two, the federal community schools grant has preferenced um, applicants from rural communities. So do you really of why, you know, things might not be taking off in Sullivan and Orange County? I really don't know. I went to high school right here in Sullivan County okay. and I wasn't thinking super critically about, you yeah. know, what resources do we need to improve our school? And why isn't the administration doing anything about this at the time? I was really just trying, like trying to pass math and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> but um, if I were to hazard a guess, I think it probably comes back to there's, you know, you're looking at a whole administration of people treading water. I might be the right analogy of, you know, just trying to keep the school open and running and make things work. You know, it it seems like there's just kind of a lack of people saying, hey, why don't we innovate with this? Why don't we partner with these other organizations here? Why aren't we whatever? Uh, But I don't know. to ask you, as someone who is really knowledgeable about education policy, if you were a, uh, you know, benevolent dictator and uh, could create any policy or set of policies that would improve public education, both in cities and rural areas or, you know, anywhere in the United States, what would be top on your to-do list? That's an interesting question. (laughs) (laughs) What immediately comes to mind, you know, I guess after fully funding schools in New York, I know this year um, we're, I think there, um, but after fully um, meeting just that basic um, funding threshold, I really do believe that we need more coordinated and tighter connections between schools and the other institutions, um, both kind of formal government um, child serving agencies, but also kind of other core institutions, tighter collaboration 
between those groups and schools so that we really have an ecosystem or system um, that functions to produce children who are ready to enter school, transition well at those different points through the K-12 system, and then transition from K-12 into further education or work. In communities where people are more affluent, families are able to do a lot to build those bridges and make those pieces come together. And whether it's urban communities where we have a lot of inequality and poverty or inner suburbs, rural communities, it's increasingly clear that those pieces just don't come together for children there. And that if our schools are going to function the way um, we're looking to them now, kind of after two decades of ed reform and really be able to get all children to some baseline level, we need to organize our schools, our child serving agencies and family serving agencies, and then the core leading institutions in communities to work together and create that system because we can't just kind of assume that the pieces are going to come together. Mm. If you as a community school director um, and someone who is actively working to create partnerships and whatnot between schools and communities and parents and teachers and whatnot, um, if you were dropped into a rural school district, what are some of the first things you're going to be thinking about as someone who does what you do? I would start um, with an asset map, which is where by category, you're looking at the resources that are already there. So Mm -hmm. what do we have, you know, and I guess given distance and transportation being a challenge, like what do we have within a reasonable distance in terms of health services, family services, substance abuse services, food support, clothing support, um, and really just getting to know the people and leaders at those organizations and try to find opportunities to create new partnerships or deepen partnerships that already exist. And I would also learn from community members and particularly family members of the school what is out there? Where do people go when they need support in a specific area? And then what areas are there where we need support and there's nowhere to go? And that would let a school have an initial place for thinking about creating new partnerships or deepening partnerships. And then where we as a school might need to invest um, where we don't have a given resource. I gotta say, it is remarkable how similarly Abel and Superintendent Del Moro are thinking about this. When I asked both of them what the first thing is that they would do if dropped in a more rural school district, they both talked about identifying what that particular student body needs 
and then figuring out exactly what resources in the community are available and how connections can be made with them to enrich students' education and create more opportunities for them. And you know what? I think this brings up a good point. Whose job is it to innovate in our schools? Who should be asking the question, what do our students need and what resources are available to make that happen both within our school, but also in the surrounding community that we can pull from? And I think you can point to pretty much any senior school administrator and say that it's on them to innovate. But like I said to Abel, each of them might already be putting in 110% and working overtime just to make sure that the school with all of its moving parts can stay open and functional. So I think the answer here is not cut and dry, but there are options on the table. First, when schools go to hire a new superintendent, it might be possible for the Board of Education to edit the position's expectations to include more time dedicated to making connections and partnerships in the community, and maybe balance that with less time handling other day-to-day -day administrative affairs. That way, when the Board is interviewing candidates for the job, they can specifically look for someone who is interested in, and perhaps has experience in, fostering more of a community school setup. And of course, another potential solution here is what's happening in many New York City schools that Abel talked about, where they partner with a nonprofit, as in his case with the Center for Supportive Schools, to bring in a community school director, someone whose entire job is dedicated to fostering this more holistic method of public education. And I'm sure that there are other ways to tackle this too, but it needs to start somewhere. In 2020, there were $250 million available in funding from New York State to develop community schools. I think that in the future, there is an opportunity for us to bring more of that upstate. But with or without the funding, we need to innovate in public education right here at home. That is how we build a better tomorrow. Thank you so much to Abel McDaniels for taking the time to chat on today's episode. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home from WJFF Radio Catskill. Mm -hmm.